Now, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Last week, we considered the first seven verses of this chapter, and Lord willing, tonight we will finish out the chapter. It will be a longer passage. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is washed by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. <clears throat> and that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him now to bless his word to us. Oh Lord, thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes and we pray that you will teach us from it and that in these pages, we might behold Christ, and um, he might be held forth, and we will give you the glory for all of this. Uh, feed our souls, Lord, from the bread of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was recently uh, reflecting on the fact that the different places I've lived, the different situations I've been in, I reflect back on those and I tend to remember them with a certain fondness and I tend to idealize in my memory uh, the way things were when I lived here, when I lived there, when I was doing this or that. Now I know myself and I can remember very uh, clearly that 
at each juncture in my life, and it, you know, Hillary can confirm this, you know, I've always sort of had my eyes on the horizon, wondering what I might pursue next, or what I might do, or, and there was a certain, there was always a certain, I guess, carnal level of discontent and wanting to find something else to do. Um, but as I think back on those days, whether it was uh, our time in Germany or our time stationed on Fort Benning or our time in Asheville, North Carolina, or our time in Greenville, I tend to remember the good things and to remember those as happy times. I, I think that's kind of what verse 20 is getting at, and I just throw that out because I won't be dealing too much with verse 20 over the course of the sermon. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You know, I think there's a certain mercy of God whereby he enables us to forget a little bit the bad things. It's not always the case, I know, but, but oftentimes he enables us to remember with happiness the days gone by. But in this text, Solomon is, is circling back and he's revisiting problems that he's already observed and that he's already dealt with and talked about in earlier passages from Ecclesiastes. You may have heard someone uh, talk about the letters of John, 1 John especially, and how whereas Paul's letters are very logical and they're laid out with a clear outline and you can trace that, John's letter, his first letter especially, tends more to be circular. And he talks about one topic, then another topic, then another topic, and then he comes back and he revisits each of those topics and says a little bit more of them, about them each time. He does that continually. Solomon's doing something like that at times in Ecclesiastes because he's going to come back to the, the problem of oppression. He's going to come back to the problem of wealth. And there will be people who say, what's the problem with wealth? I mean, give me more of that. But wealth has its problems, and he reflects on that. And what we'll find from this passage, I think, is that God gives good gifts to sinners, even as we live in this fallen and cursed world. There's a lot of problems in life. There's, there are a lot of problems in this world. But in the midst of them all, uh, even though God doesn't take them all away from us. He didn't spare us from every problem, every hardship. In the midst of them all, he gives us good gifts. And the reason he gives them to us is so that we can enjoy them. He gives good gifts to sinners living in a fallen and cursed world. <clears throat> By the time Jeff had to print the bulletin, I hadn't come up with an outline that I was satisfied with or that I thought I'd be happy with come Saturday or Sunday. So there's no outline in your bulletin this time. That's uh, my fault. I apologize. But here's my outline. First, we're going to see the problem of oppression. And then we're going to see the problem of money. And yes, money can be a problem. And then we're going to talk about what the text describes as the power to enjoy. The power to enjoy. But first, the problem of oppression. In verse 8, uh, we, we read verse 8, and it very much like lots of other parts of Ecclesiastes, it might sound pretty pessimistic. If you see in a province oppression of the poor and violation of justice, don't be amazed. Hey, it happens. That might sound pessimistic, but he's just dealing with the reality of oppression in the world. 
And rather than looking at it as, as really pessimistic, you know, I think it's actually maybe a little bit understated. Because he says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, it's, it's almost as if there's a possibility oppression might be out there somewhere. So he's maybe understating things a little bit. But, um, but his response to that is, don't be amazed by that. It's grievous, yes, but don't be surprised. Why? Well, partially because injustice and oppression are everywhere. Not just in that province out there. In this province right here. We see it all the time. And again, think of the fact that we're now uh, fully into another election cycle. And what do politicians so frequently promise they're going to do? And it doesn't matter what party they're from. They say if they get elected to office, they're going to get rid of corruption. They're going to deal with that corruption in government. And yet, very little cleaning up seems to get done, does it? Well, how do we respond when we see corruption in government, when it's out there and when, we, uh, when it's exposed? Well, I think we respond differently uh, depending on uh, who the guilty parties are. If it's somebody from the other side of the aisle, somebody from uh, our political enemies that's exposed, uh, we have a tendency to say, see, they're all corrupt, all the people on that side. If it happens to be one of ours, uh, we just sort of groan and, and wish it hadn't happened. But re- oppression is, is reality. And we really should seek to deal with it. We really should seek to, uh, when, when we see oppression, when we see injustice, we should seek to do what we are able to do to make things right. But as children of God, we of all people ought to understand that in this world which is fallen, this world which is under the curse, oppression is going to keep springing up. We can root it out, but more will come. It's just a fact of living in a sin-cursed world, and we know that. God's Word tells us that. Not even Solomon himself could clean it all up in his kingdom, could he? In fact, tragically, Solomon himself eventually became guilty of it. Now, this statement at the end of verse 8, where it says, do, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. That might not seem like a very satisfactory explanation as to why we shouldn't be amazed by oppression, but um, how should we understand what he's saying there about the, the higher officials? Well, we can think of it in a positive sense. Um, he might be saying we can, we can hope that those higher officials will deal with the corruption of people under them. It's a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit idealistic, maybe a little bit too optimistic. Or in a more negative sense, it could just be a statement that it doesn't matter what strata of government you're talking about, there's going to be corruption there. It occurs in the highest 
echelons of power structures in a country and it comes right down to the local level too. But we could also interpret that statement in light of the Lord himself. We could interpret it in the light of Christ because there is a high official who is high above all others. There's a high official who's above all the nations. He rules over all and his kingdom will have no end. We sing about that in our songs. We sang a Christmas song during our hymn sing tonight. Think of another song that tends to be sung at Christmas time and there's a line in it that goes, in his name all oppression shall cease. Or one of our hymns out of our hymnal, he comes to break oppression. Before him on the mountains shall peace the herald go and righteousness in fountains from hill to valley flow. Over every official, there's, an, there's a higher. And if you reach the top in terms of human authority, all that authority from top to bottom is given by God. And our Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of them all. He is the highest official. And one day he's gonna make everything right. He'll come and he'll finally and totally break all oppression. So when we're confronted with the problem of oppression, we do have a resource, and that ultimate resource is to look up, to set our sights higher, to look to the highest official of all whose name is above every name. And that's the ultimate answer to oppression that we have, and it should be a comfort to us. But then there's the problem of money. Verse 9 is kind of a transition verse, and it transitions us to the subject of wealth. Um, Look at it again, because it's another one that's difficult to interpret. And actually, even it's difficult uh, to to know what to make of of the Hebrew. Uh, This says in the ESV, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And you probably even have a footnote um, that says the meaning of the Hebrew verse is uncertain. And that's, uh, um, that's just the fact of the matter. But it, if you, you can get a commentary, and the commentator will say it probably means this. And then you can look at another commentator, and that guy's going to disagree with the first guy, and it goes on and on, because there are almost as many interpretations of this verse as there are commentators. But if we take the way the ESV renders it, I think we could, we could understand it in this sense. <clears throat> that a just and righteous ruler is going to promote the flourishing of all the citizenry. But that brings us into the, uh, that tra- transitions us from the, um, from the theme of um, rulers and authorities into the, into the theme of money or wealth. And so we have the problem of money. Solomon revisits the theme of vanity in connection with all kinds of wealth. And he speaks here of the love of money. And even if you're not 
extremely familiar with the Old Testament or with the book of Ecclesiastes, that phrase, the love of money, might ring a bell because we see that in the New Testament. It uh, speaks uh, of what Paul was speaking of in 1 Timothy 6 when he said the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money isn't a bad thing. In fact, uh, in and of itself, money and wealth are good things. The problem is we fall in love with them. And if we love money, if we love wealth, then that money or that wealth becomes an idol. And just like all other idols, the problem with the idol of money the idol of wealth, is that it won't satisfy. It can't satisfy. And it wasn't designed to satisfy. So what are these things? What, what are uh, money and wealth? We can't make idols of them, but again and again, Solomon in Ecclesiastes describes them as, as gifts. In Scripture, in general, describes wealth as a gift from God, a gift that we are to use for our enjoyment and in service to Him and for His glory. They are gifts from God to be used for His glory, not to replace Him or to supplant Him. But so often, mankind tries to put money on the throne of his life and on the throne of his heart. And so what Solomon does in these verses is he offers a series of observations about what's going to happen to that person who loves money. Observations uh, about what lovers of money can expect. The first one is that consumers tend to increase proportionally with goods. You think you're getting ahead, making a little bit more cash, and then all of a sudden the expenses increase. With greater assets come greater liabilities. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? You know, they they pass through his hand, they pass through his wallet, through his checkbook, they come in and they go out. So we can make more money, but then expenses will increase. The mouths we have to feed increase. The people who want charitable contributions increase. That's number one. Number two, concern over either gaining wealth or retaining what we have gained tends to lead to anxiety. And the example that he gives is found in verse 12 regarding sleep. And he paints this picture for us of a a laborer. He probably doesn't make much money. He's maybe living hand to mouth. uh, but he goes out, he works hard, he comes home, he's tired, he has his dinner, and then he lays down and he's, his sleep is sweet. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Because he's always worrying about losing his money or what he can do to make sure he doesn't lose his money. Or what he can do to get more. Third, wealth has a way of vanishing. 
So he tells a little story in verse 13 and 14. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The conjunction at the beginning of verse 14, and, uh, could also be translated or, so that could be two different scenarios. Someone who just holds on to his money, but it ends up just you know, not doing him any good, maybe the opposite, doing him harm. Or he's got these riches, and he makes some kind of an investment, and he loses it all. Meanwhile, he has a son who's to be his heir, but he doesn't have anything to give him. Proverbs 23.5 talks about wealth and says, don't, don't lay your eyes on it. Don't, don't strive to amass wealth because, as that passage from Proverbs says, wealth has a tendency to sprout wings and fly away. And fourth, in the end, everyone loses all of their worldly wealth. That's the message of verses 15 and 16 talking about that same man or one of those men. Uh, he says, and it, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Remember the, the words of Job after he lost everything. Job was a wealthy man. And in one day, he lost not only all of his wealth, but his children as well, his whole family. And his response was, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Solomon may have been borrowing Job's words there. We come out of the womb naked. We can't take anything with us when we go. Job could praise God even after he lost everything because he had wealth, but he didn't love wealth. Or think of the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly why he taught us this. Matthew 6.20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for neither moth nor rust destroys. Thieves don't break in and steal. Where stock markets don't crash. Where investments don't go south. And then so often the experience of lovers of money ends up like what he describes in verse 17. Look at that with me again. Moreover, speaking of the man who loves wealth, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So his love of money consumes him, turns him inward, makes him selfish, even drives him to sickness. So, so the, the experience of the lovers of money is often that way. Think of a guy like Howard Hughes. In his day, one of the richest people on earth and he was miserable. Or think of George Soros. Does he look like a happy man to you? He's a billionaire. 
But you know, this problem isn't only for the affluent. You don't have to be a billionaire to be consumed by wealth and by the love of money and for it to, be, to oppress you. You can just be the guy, uh, the, the, the laborer waiting for that promotion. It doesn't have to do with whether you're dealing with billions or thousands or hundreds in your bank account. It all has to do with Is money what you love? Is it your idol? That's the problem of money. It becomes an idol so easily. But this doesn't mean that there's nothing good for us in this present life. In the midst of toil, in the midst of sometimes oppression or injustice, all the sorrows that this present age has for us, God provides in the midst of it all pleasant things, good things. And he enables us to enjoy them. And that's the last point, the power to enjoy. Those are the words that Solomon uses. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. You can have wealth and you can have possessions and not enjoy them at all. And it's all because God's gift to you is the ability to enjoy the good things he's given. So he tells us in verse 18 what he's found to be good. Solomon says, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. There are blessings, there are good gifts mingled among the burdens of daily life. What are they? They're pretty simple. Food, refreshment. Even our works themselves, sometimes they're toilsome. They present challenges. They have ever since Genesis 3 when God said to the man, he says, uh, in the sweat of your brow you you will till the ground and get your bread from it. I I can't imagine what work was like in the garden prior to the fall. But there's no unpleasantness in it. There's no toil in it. There's no um, futility in it. The ground didn't bear weeds and thorns and thistles. So since the fall, we keep working. We have to work to get our bread, but the ground resists us. The creation resists us. And that's just part of the curse. But even now, even though our work is toilsome, it can sometimes provide satisfaction. I, I, I suspect that, that many of you have enjoyed that in your work, found some delight in your work. That's a gift of God. So we, uh, we need to know that this world's goods aren't able to give true satisfaction. But knowing that, as the Lord gives opportunity, enjoy them. That's what he would have for us. I think the little things in life, life's simple pleasures, the the good things that God gives us to enjoy, they're like postcards from heaven. For you who are trusting in Jesus Christ and have hope of eternal salvation, when you enjoy a good meal, 
That's just a preview of when we're going to recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. When we're going to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb where the food is going to be better than you can possibly imagine. But that really tasty thing that you enjoy sometimes is like a, it's like a, a preview that God gives to assure you that something much, much better is coming. Now, there have been people, and maybe you've, uh, if, you're, if you're in Pastor Mark's Sunday school class on church history, there have been people over the history of the church who, out of a desire to mortify sin, have pursued what we call asceticism. You know what I'm talking about? Asceticism, it's... Uh, it's the abandonment or the rejection of this world's goods. It's abstention from earthly pleasures out of a desire to focus on the life to come and to resist temptation. And so you've had ascetics throughout the history of the Christian church, and it expresses in itself in, in monasticism and those sorts of things. And, and many of the great uh, people in church history have, have been ascetics to some uh, extent or other, but Ecclesiastes rejects asceticism. And I think Jesus rejects asceticism, and I think the whole New Testament rejects asceticism. And so in 1 Timothy 6.17, it says that God has given us all things freely to enjoy. He gives us good things and he wants us to enjoy them. It's a gift from him and the ability to enjoy them is a gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from God and even the power to enjoy them comes from God. You know, the fact that we have good things in life that we can enjoy and that that's common both to believers and non-believers, Paul used that even as an evangelistic tool when he was preaching the gospel to the people in Lystra. In Acts 14, 17, he testifies that God did good to them by giving them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. And he used that to point them to Christ, the goodness of God. Cynics ask this question. They ask the question, if there's a God, why is there so much pain? The question they ought to ask is, if there's a God, why is there so much pleasure? Because fallen sinful man doesn't deserve any good thing, but day after day after day, God showers us with good things. And it's because of his love for us. Now the good things of this life are God's gift, and they're God's gift to all of mankind. In a fallen, broken, painful and oppressive world, God mingles the sorrows of the fall with this vast array of blessings. Many of them are just those simple pleasures of life that he gives us, given for us to enjoy. Delicious foods, refreshments of various kinds, family, rest, friends. Like the rain, that he sends on the just and the unjust. Like the sun that he causes to rise on the wicked as well as the good. 
These are good gifts given by the Lord of the universe to all of his creatures, and as Solomon puts it, this is the gift of God. But there is a much greater gift that he gives, a far greater gift. And this gift he gives only to his elect. For his elect there are incomparable riches that God has reserved for those who love him, who love him and they're kept for you in heaven. They're kept in heaven for those who believe. You know, when, when God's word gives us glimpses of the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, when God's word paints for our feeble understanding images of new Jerusalem, why does he do that? Why does he attempt to describe for us something we can't comprehend or conceive of right now, but the the effort is made to show us the heavenly Jerusalem, to show us images of his kingdom of glory. He does that to assure us that true and enduring wealth is only for those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those riches aren't found in this present age. They await us in the age to come. And they can be summed up in one gift, God's inexpressible, indescribable gift, which is Christ himself. And it's that gift that we celebrate together when we come to the Lord's table. When we take the bread and we drink the cup, we celebrate God's indescribable gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we remember at the table. And that's why we're going to come now because Jesus gives his blood. He shed all of it for us. His blood was poured out for sinners. Jesus gave his body to be manna from heaven, to be spiritual food for us, a spiritual feast. So as we prepare to come to the table,